Welcome back to Tea and Robots. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen Hoover. I'm your other host, Emily Stark, and today we have with us a new graduate student in the lab, Rachel St. Clair. Hi, everybody. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing great, Stephen. I'm happy to be here with you guys. We brought you on because you're a new student in the machine perception. And well, hang on, there's a correction. Lab. She's not a new student. That's true. She's a new grad student. She's been here for a while. Old student. So you're an old student in the machine perception and cognitive robotics lab. So what brought you here? When I was applying for graduate schools, and after having worked with NPCR for almost a year when I was making my application decisions, I decided to include FAU in this graduate program so I can continue working with NPCR. Based on the fact that I saw a lot of dedication here in the lab and a lot of people who are serious and passionate about really paving some innovative ways in the frontier of deep learning, I really didn't see that in other schools. Even in some of the schools I applied to on the West Coast in California and got accepted to, I wasn't sure that I would get the chance to work with the types of people that are here at NPCR, and so I think that's what kind of pushed me over the edge to do my graduate program here in the GNTP. GNTP, for those who are unaware, is what, Rachel? So yeah, that's the Graduate Neuroscientist Training Program. Uh, this is the pilot year. Basically, it's hosted by the Brain Institute here at FAU, and it's an opportunity for new graduate students to invest in exploring their options before they commit to a certain lab. So the first year you get to do rotations, so I'm taking that opportunity to get to know my interests a little bit better. And it's a joint program as well, so it's not just labs, it's what three degrees could you earn? You can differentiate kind of into either experimental psychology, complex systems and brain sciences, or integrative biology. Those are the three different graduate programs we have here. So the first year, you kind of get to explore working with any of those three programs. And then at the end of the first year, you can actually pick which program you like best. They're all interdisciplinary, so they have a lot of influence on each other. So just because you're interested in one thing, you could go into multiple programs. It's a good way to kind of figure out which program is going to be the best fit for you. Well, I'm glad that you're here. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> As I understand it, you came here because... As you just said, your research uh, interest aligned more with what this program had to offer you. Do you want to talk about what your research is or what you'd like to study? Or the stuff that you actually can disclose anyway? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm working on several projects that all have to do with computer vision in some way or another. So, And they're all very different from each other, which is one of the things I really like because I have a lot of diverse interests. It's hard for me to commit to one field, such as biology or chemistry or um, computer science and stuff. So it's nice being able to research different avenues, all under the same branch of kind of computer vision. I think you wanted to know, like, specifically? Yeah. yeah what's it... your main project? Okay, so my main project, my child, which I work on with my <laughs> colleague, uh, Michael, <laughs> is called Deep Proteins, and we look at protein data from amino acids. Like and steak? Yeah. Can you explain what like proteins steaks. are. So basically <laughs> proteins make up every biological entity, you know, plants, humans. Plants have protein? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so uh, proteins are made in cells. So DNA makes proteins and proteins make stuff that's, you know, biologically alive. Let's be clear because that might change in a couple years. We read the amino acids, which is what makes a protein, the individual Legos of the protein Lego house. We run deep learning 
and we're, we're currently using LSTMs. What is an LSTM? It's a long short-term memory, artificial neural network. So basically it is modeled off of biological memory processes um, where you have working memory and long-term memory. So it's a new type of math that allows you to look at information in a time series dependent way. So that means if I'm looking at a chunk of amino acids in a protein, I need to know what amino acid comes before and what comes after. And I might need to know what amino acids come like 23 letters before the amino acids are represented in letters, or like what might come 23 later. So it's important to know in your temporal space what is going to be in that composition of a protein. So we kind of take all that information in, and using this new type of math called deep learning, we apply different techniques to kind of sort through thousands of proteins, which wouldn't be humanly possible in the amount of time a computer can do it, and we can get certain features, like target drug binding and um, synthetic protein function discovery. It's highly useful in, in proteomics, which if you don't know, that's just... I don't know. Most people don't. There's so many omics nowadays. Proteomics is just the study of proteins. That's all it is. So when you say it like that, yeah, it seems right? like wouldn't I that be protology? Mm, yeah, it could be protology. <laughs> so proteomics is kind of the bioinformatic type study. When I say study, I mean like big data type study. Like I'm gonna sort through the computer information, not the actual proteins in real life. I mean, they relate to real life proteins, but I'm not actually in a lab with beakers doing wet lab bench work. So. It's okay. We have GPUs. I think they're cooler, and they have less VOCs. So I have a question, because I'm confused, as <laughs> usual. Um, just kidding. I'm a very intelligent person. You said this is computer vision, so how are you computerly visualizing the so proteins? Are you trying to, like... Does the vision read? It's like reading. Just how we look at words on a page, and we use our vision to <laughs> understand those words... The computer is kind of doing the same thing, so it, it might not be in conventional terms of computer vision, but I think that field of computer vision is rapidly expanding with the new techniques and the way we're applying them to different problems than typically before. Typically before, LSTMs have only been used in natural language processing, which is basically like Siri and Alexa and, and anything that understands uh, language like English or Japanese language, any natural language is what they call it. So in applying it to biological language, it's really novel. It's a really new field. Um, in the past decade, there's only a handful of people that have done it. Uh, I think those terms, such as computer vision, are really expanding to include these new applications of a computer looking at our representation of ideas in the form of letters and being able to extract biological information from that. Hmm. Is that cleared up, Emily? I'm going to go with Yes. This protein business, is this what you were working on when you first came to the lab before being in the GNTP? Yes, kind of. There's always gray area. So um, I originally was working in a behavioral analysis lab in part of my undergraduate years with mice on some epileptic studies and the role of Theta Wave. Very different from what I have been doing. I kind of met some of the people in the NPCR lab in, during my undergraduate years, and they were working on an interesting project for a global competition called Algems to detect counterfeit drugs. It was proposed somewhere along the way that we use deep learning proteomics to solve that problem. 
and I got really interested because it was when the project was first taking off, so I got to kind of see how it was all going to work from the beginning, and I kind of jumped right into that, and I've, I've been working on that for the past year. That door kind of closed. We've got a lot of that target drug binding sorted out, and we realized that with that same model, we can do a bunch more. We can do a whole lot more. So now we're applying a similar model in the same Deep Proteins project for autoantibodies to detect uh, target antigen binding and to kind of highlight compositional functional inquiry about proteins, which wasn't really possible before these techniques. So other than proteins, is all of your research really biological-based? Yeah, so my undergraduate was in biology, but I also specialed in uh, neuroscience. I had a deep interest in medicine and neuroscience. Basically, I feel like, why should we live longer if we can't live good lives? And so part of living good lives is having good medicine. So I've always been interested in medicine, so everything I do kind of stems from this biomedical application, but it's not all bio unless you make the biology umbrella really, really big, <laughs> which is what I've kind of done. So I have some other projects, some secondary projects. One of them is um, kind of some deep learning chemistry, and we're doing a similar thing that Deep Proteins is doing, looking at chemicals and trying to predict functions and features and properties just from different chemical inputs. And that has a lot to do in the molecular modeling sphere. So when you're actually trying to see what molecules can do and simulate what will happen in different drugs or different chemicals, it's good to do that in a computer first because synthesizing those drugs artificially is very expensive and time-consuming. So if you could kind of probe the area in the reaction first, it's much easier. And it's the same type of computer vision. Uh, it's either looking at a chemical shape or a similar way chemicals have names written in the natural language that we can look at with a computer. Are we allowed to ask about your cool project? I am working on another really cool project that I am really excited about. It's a brand new project, so I can't say much, but basically in the United States, we're kind of moving towards a new type of therapy that involves certain pharmacological drugs that have to uh, induce hallucinogenic states. So right now, there are a couple companies that are in phase three clinical trials for such drugs. And these drugs have never been introduced in the US legally for medicinal purposes. And the side effects of these drugs can be really harsh. So one of the things we wanna do is kind of prepare patients that will be receiving this therapy to handle the side effects more easily than they would be without preparation. What that really means is that when you take an hallucinogen in certain doses with the right hallucinogen, you will probably be exposed to see visual abstractions that aren't there, which is why it's called a hallucinogen. So if we can prime patients who will be taking this hallucinogen to understand what these visual effects may be better than whatever they think it may be, and to kind of experience it beforehand before they even take the drugs, I think it can be really good at increasing their psychological aptitude to take the drug. So psychological aptitude, what that kind of means is how ready you are. So in this type of therapy, your mental state, your, your frame of mind, really depends on how well you can receive the therapy and the, and the benefits of the hallucinogenic drugs. So we're working to create an experience, a primer experience, in augmented reality that will help people experience these side effects before they ever take the drugs. So when they take the drugs, they know what to expect and they can focus on the inherent therapy 
that's there and get the most out of it rather than being distracted by visual cues. So that's kind of a new project. I really love it. We're hoping to partner with some, with some big people. What platform are you using? Because um, most of this lab is just in a GPU in a box next to our desks. Yeah, so I think we're working on using Magic Leap 1. It's brand new. That just came out. What's right? that? It's an augmented reality headset that is the first of its kind. They're kind of a pioneer in their field to get it to commercial market uh, on a platform that is very easy to wear. It's like, it's like literally like wearing sunglasses. It's really cool. It's kind of like VR. Most people have heard of virtual reality or VR. But you still see the room around you. You still see your friends sitting next to you. Um, you can just create different effects through the software that kind of projects in your visual space onto the reality you're seeing. It's really cool, it's a, and, and Magic Leap is a really cool company, so this device, one, is going to be a really cool device to work with. So you said that you came in with a biology background. How much coding experience did you have when you came into the lab? I know how to use a computer. <laughs> that was the extent of my coding knowledge. I don't think I could have felt like, I probably didn't even know how to find the terminal. <laughs> I had to, like, look that up the first time I needed to find it. <laughs> Sometimes I still have to search for it a little bit, but it's fun. Was that difficult to come into such a computationally heavy and, and data science-centric lab with not knowing where the terminal was? You're already here. We won't kick you out if you're honest. I will be brutally honest here. I think it would have been miserable if it hadn't been for what NPCR really is. So being a student-driven lab, it's very sink or swim. I'm not the only one that has said that. So coming in knowing nothing, that means two things. It's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It's a great thing because there's no pressure on me. I didn't feel pressured of like, oh, I got to figure out how to code all of Python by tomorrow. There was none of that. Um, it was take it or leave it. So I kind of took a couple bites into what it was and what it would be to, to really understand this material at a time and uh, there was a lot of people there to help me which was drastically changing you know my experience here I think because if I would have came in and I didn't have anyone to kind of like hey how do I do this and get friendly feedback it might have been too much of a task for me knowing no biology but with everyone here in the lab being so helpful and ready to help with different tasks and at least point me in the right direction for resources. It was really easy to kind of pick it up at my own pace that I was comfortable with. But yet, being integrated in a lab that has so many people that are so dedicated, like I said earlier, it was really motivating. So that was part of my uh, swimming tutorial, was coming in and being like, oh, I don't know any of this, but there's people here and they're learning it too. I want to learn it too. I'll keep going. Um, and eventually, I just kept doing that. I'm still doing that, by the way. And um, I know how to find the terminal now <laughs> with ease. If you're on Ubuntu, it's Control-Alt-T. So I didn't know that. I See, just pressed the icon. We learn from each other. It's like it's the, true. Best, <laughs> the best environment. You said that there was a good part and a bad part. So being sink or swim, the bad part is if you're not self-motivated and you can't find that intrinsic drive, it may be hard to stick with it. Because there's no one holding the carrot above your head while you're on that treadmill trying to get it. You know, you have to be the person that's going to say, I want to learn this. And I think ultimately for me, I work well with that. Because once I define that intrinsic motivation, 
of why I want to do it, then that's something I can stand on and come back to whenever I need it. So that's kind of been part of my swimming process too, but if, if that's, if you're not capable of finding that intrinsic motivation, it might be a little difficult to kind of be committed to learning this stuff. So there's actually psych research on that kind of dichotomy of intrinsic versus external, like internal versus external motivation. Like if you're raising a child, not that you're a child, but if you were to, or that you're raising a child for the record. But if I'm basically a child. <laughs> if one were to raise a child um, and they wanted the child to like reading, you might think, okay, well, I need to get my child to read, so I'll give them $5 every day they spend reading for an hour or more. But if you give them that, then that's how they justify their reading behavior. They say, oh, I'm reading so I can get $5. Versus if you just tell them to read or if they're just reading, then they have to find some other reason that they're reading. They can't say, oh, I'm reading because I'm getting $5. They're saying, oh, I'm reading, so therefore I must like reading. They want to achieve cognitive consistency. Actually, this is not related. Rachel Sinclair is so smart. I got sick and she started giving me a lecture on like the micro... Emily's smarter. Don't let her fool you. Antibiotics? Microbiotics. Micro antibiotics. Chicken soup. That's the one. But Mama's what's in it? chicken soup or grandma's. Okay, Mama's can you better. explain what micro antibiotics are? So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> They're making it more complicated than it is, but that's okay. It, in chicken noodle soup, there's certain chemicals, um, amino acids, and chicken broth that actually kill bacteria. So that's why grandma's chicken noodle soup, when you're sick, actually does have some biological uh, research to stand on. So this is the kind of thing that happens. I text her that I'm sick, and then she gives me a biology lesson, which makes me smarter, um, but not necessarily less sick in the moment because I didn't eat the chicken broth. But anyway, it's exciting to be able to share my realm of psychology with her. So with the intrinsic and extrinsic or internal versus external motivation, and this kind of applies to the lab, by being internally motivated, you justify to yourself, whether it's true or not, you can convince yourself that you like things. So Fessinger, back in like the early 1900s, did this study where basically had people sit in like, I don't know if it was a dark room, but I like to imagine they're sitting in this dark room and they have this like setup where they just have to turn like a knob a quarter of the way, so like 90 degrees, and they have a whole row of them that they have to do. Then they go back and turn them the other way, so they undo their work, and they go and do that. They do that for like an hour, and it's awful, and it's boring, and everyone hates it. But then they have, as they're walking from the experiment room to, like, the quote-unquote debriefing room to take a questionnaire about it, the experimenter says, hey, you know, we're having some trouble with this study with getting participants. There's someone in, like, the waiting area that will pass. Do you mind just telling them that you enjoyed the task, that you liked the task? So then, essentially, they get the participant to lie about liking the task. And in one situation, they say, I'll give you, you know, at that point, it was about $100 for the lie, based on how much they, inflation and all that. And then the other group, they didn't give them anything. They just asked them to. So they found that the people who were paid to lie reported having less satisfaction with the task versus the people who were not paid to lie. So essentially, if you lied and you didn't get paid for it, you actually convinced yourself that you liked that really boring task. Because otherwise, you have to accept the fact that you're a liar and you don't want to do that. So instead, you want to think of yourself as a good person. So you convince yourself, oh, it wasn't a lie. I loved the task. Is this before or after his introduction of cognitive dissonance? This is cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah. He, this was, uh, he had a whole thing with a, a cult that was going on where that's where he introduced the theory. I was wondering if that was before I thought this is where he introduced the theory. I, I might be wrong, but I often am. I thought it was when there was some, uh, there's a group living in a house together. They thought aliens were going to come and pick them up and take them to a new location. Uh, Leon Festinger and one of his graduate students 
Uh, Stephen Carroll? No, sh- Stephen King? No, that's I don't believe it's Stephen that's King. That's definitely it. Stephen Presley? Uh, <laughs> I don't believe so. So one of his graduate students and him had infiltrated this group who had made all these proclamations that the world was going to end and that they'd be taken somewhere else. And then he made a prediction that no, actually, as soon as the world doesn't end on the date that they predicted, they're going to double down on the fact that they they still believe the world is going to end, everything's going to be awful, and that's what he coined as his theory of cognitive dissonance when you're more invested in the idea. Understanding, and now we have a very intimate understanding of internal versus external motivation. Mm-hmm. It tells you a lot about the lab, because we don't have those hard deadlines. You know, as Stephen can hopefully attest, because he's my undergraduate student, I don't sit there and I say, all right, I need this script written by this day, and I need this thing written this, and I need, you know, I don't give him hard deadlines or even really hard tasks. It's like, all right, this is what needs to happen next. Who can take it on? Um, And then if he volunteers, he volunteers. And then I'm not breathing down his neck for it. If I have a task later on that requires a task, I might ask him if he can do it sooner or later. And if he can't, then, you know, I take it on or someone else will take it on. But this lab, it's, you're really not required to do anything um, because we hope that you're here not because you're required to be here, but because you want to be here. And that process over time really does lead to the people who want to be here staying and the people who don't. We see a lot of people that come through the doors and are interested and then come and, and hang out for a little bit, but ultimately just don't stick with it. So that's, that's kind of the sad part is, I, you know, we do miss out on students that potentially could be very talented, but just don't have that internal motivation yet or they don't see their, themselves fitting. There's definitely magic. We have the magic leaf. It's in the other room. Yeah, we have the magic leaf, and it radiates magic. It just permeates (laughs) everyone's soul. So, you know, when I think when new students come in and and they don't see the magic here, I think a lot of what we're doing is is so innovative that also teaching it is kind of difficult. It's more difficult than other lectures. Like, physics is relatively new-ish compared to other types of scientific fields. Um, but yet, if you want to research physics, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of books. Or on deep learning, there might only be a couple hundred thousand. And uh, novel deep learning that's just coming out probably just came out in the last five minutes. So I think that's, that's one of the other factors, is that you have to be hungry for that, that frontier. You have to want to be on the front lines of something where people are kind of making their way. Like our wonderful PI always says, it's the wild, wild west of deep learning right now, which I just Which love. one of our PIs says that? Is it both? I feel I like both of I them have like said both. that. Oh, I thought it was Will. It's probably just Will. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that I love that phrase because I come in, I come here and I'm like, yay, this is the wild west. I can do whatever I want. And uh, that's a really cool feeling because I like what I do. No, but I think, you know, along with that, it's crazy. We're, we're at a point now that isn't often found in research, I don't believe, that really our main limiting reagent for what we're able to accomplish in this lab in research, especially using deep learning, is the questions we ask it, how curious we are. So it's funny because I was on a, a group chat with myself and then the two PIs. One of the PIs sent a text that was intended, I'm assuming for his, his wife or his kid or something, saying, you know, I'm, I'm headed home and I'm going to stop by the store or whatever to pick something up. And so me, being sassy, uh, I respond, oh great, I'm out of hand lotion. You know, because it was like Bath and Body Works or something like that. And so I meant that as a cute little joke to be like, oh, haha, sorry, wrong, wrong thread. But instead, the other PI was like, hey, actually, no, we need to think about this with like olfaction. Because I had mentioned like the seasonal, you know, I wanted the, the seasonal um, smelling hand lotion or whatever. 
Um, and he's like, well, think about, like, you know, if you go to the makeup counter and then they try the makeup on you, but then you don't like it, you have to, like, wipe off all the makeup. So if we use, like, you know, this deep learning, then you can see the makeup on you. But then if we think about that with olfaction, you know, how the perfume will smell on you, you don't have to walk around. And I'm like, I was just trying to make a joke. Like, let's calm down here. <laughs> uh, There's just not enough hours in the day. I think that's our, our true limiting reagent is... It's not the ideas, it's not the time. To that's true, time. yeah. We've got plenty of ideas. Well, I'm glad that you brought your ideas here to NPCR and you stuck around with it. You, I would say you're very enthusiastically swimming. You're definitely not sinking. Yeah, you I'm, I'm going to steal that phrase. Swimming is lovely. That's great. Thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's great to be here. All right, so we're <laughs> signing off. We will, uh, we will catch up with you next time. Bye.